Well, if you want to follow along in the majority text, it's on page 29, uh, the text uh, used by the church in the first thousand years. And you have the whole context, but I'm just going to read verses 11 through 14. And after three and a half days, the breath from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who were watching them. And I heard a loud voice from the heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that day there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 individuals were killed in the earthquake. And the rest became fearful and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Look out. Here comes the third woe. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our glory to study it, to seek for treasures in it. And we pray that you would open up the eyes of our understanding to be able to faithfully uh, uh, preach it, to be able to faithfully receive it, and to faithfully live it out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, I stumbled onto a very odd story about the Countess of Hanover, Germany. This took place in the 1700s. Uh, she died at the age of 30 and was an avowed atheist and apparently had a bee in her bonnet about the resurrection because she did everything she could to oppose that doctrine. She hated that doctrine. And uh, prior to her death, she asked her heirs to she thought this was maybe a bright idea, to use her tomb as a testimony against the resurrection. So the instructions were that she was to be placed in a stone coffin, and then around the coffin would be these massive marble um, um, blocks that were put all around it, clasped with iron clasps, and then they were supposed to write this sign on there, Sign said, this burial place, purchased to all eternity, must never be opened. Well, God must have a sense of humor because uh, there was a little birch tree seed that sprouted right between the cracks and started expanding and broke the clasps. And by the time the article I read, it was an old newspaper, uh, it was about 100 years later, <laughs> the entire slab, I guess it was a marble slab, was way up in this birch tree with the sign just looking ridiculous, you know. <laughs> May this never be open. So she was mocking God. God uh, appear, apparently was mocking her. And down through history, there have been many people who have sought to debunk any concept of a resurrection. They deny the resurrection of Jesus. They deny that we will have any resurrection bodies in the future. But God has already punctuated history uh, with resurrections that have been witnessed by many. God's power displayed in the resurrection of the body is a historical fact. The book of Acts begins by saying, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke alludes to the hundreds of witnesses to Christ's uh, resurrection, and hundreds witnessed the resurrection of many other people, uh, 
that rose just after Christ rose from the grave. Matthew 27 says, Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So there were many witnesses. They appeared to many. And in this chapter, we see thousands who witnessed the resurrection of the two prophets who had been killed three and a half days earlier. Now, we're going to be looking more at the AD 70 resurrection later on in the book because uh, there were many who were raised on the same day. And even two Roman historians uh, may be alluding to this when uh, referring to different events. They talked about the first century, they, them seeing bodies rising up out of the grave. Um, actually, one of them says it was spirits that they saw rising up out of, um, uh, out of the ground. One historian saw the souls rising at Mount Vesuvius, another one in Greece. And uh, it, it, it could very well be alluding to the same uh, event. But God made sure that there were plenty of people to see these rotting corpses stand up on their feet and be called up by God uh, to heaven. Now, because uh, it's uh, popular in even uh, Christian circles to deny an AD 70 resurrection, what I want to do is I want to spend most of the sermon today, before we get to the applications, I want to spend it uh, going through and demonstrating that this, um, uh, this was indeed uh, a historical fact. Now, point number one asks, how many resurrections are there in history? Uh, dispensationalists say that there are four or five. Uh, historic pre-mills say that there are three. Uh, Amills will sometimes talk about there being just one resurrection of many people in the future. There are some who hold to two. So there, there's been differing views uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ on that. But we're going to be seeing this morning that even on our view, it's not quite a straightforward answer. I can't give... It depends on what you're talking about, theologically or historically. There are three periods uh, of history when uh, there were many people who rose from the grave, 30 A.D., 70 A.D., and then there will be, at the last day of history, people who will uh, be resurrected. But Scripture groups the first two resurrections together into one harvest and treats them as being a part of the first resurrection. And you might wonder, why would Scripture do that when 30 A.D. and 70 A.D., that's a separation of 40 years. Why not just count them as three different resurrections? Well, some scriptures speak that way, but there's others, too, that group them into one resurrection. Now, I believe the reason is found in the first subpoint in your outlines there. Over and over, when scripture speaks of the resurrection of believers, it likens it to a grain harvest. And so, you might get the impression that there's only one resurrection. You know, it was a grain harvest. But in fact, there were two quite separate grain harvests that were connected to two quite separate festivals. Uh, the barley harvest was the first harvest. And then 50 days later, there was a wheat harvest. And Scripture consistently connects the barley harvest with the first century uh, resurrection and consistently connects the wheat harvest with the resurrection that will be at the end of history. And I've given a little diagram at the bottom of your, your outline so that you can see that. In fact, I've given a, a lot of other detail in your outline, so I won't have to spend so much time uh, talking about it. But just as an example, Exodus uh, 9 is one of the verses I've included in your outline. 
it speaks of the barley harvest being totally destroyed by the hail, but the wheat harvest was not destroyed because it hadn't sprouted yet. Okay, and that's one of many passages that indicate uh, they were quite separate harvests. Back in those days, they would plant the wheat about 50 days after they planted the barley. Um, now, one of the things that was unique about the barley harvest was that it was divided up into two parts. And that was not true of the wheat harvest. But the barley harvest officially had two stages. There was the festival of first fruits when a small token harvest was offered up before the Lord even if the barley was green, and usually it was green at that, that point. And uh, that symbolically pointed to the resurrection of Jesus and some Old Testament saints together with Jesus. Then there was the main barley harvest of the ripe grain about a month later. It was usually about a month later, but it was considered one harvest even though it was divided up into two parts. So it's not the wheat harvest. Both parts constituted one barley harvest. And in the same way, we're going to be seeing that even though the resurrection in AD 30 and the resurrection in AD 70 are separated in time, they are theologically considered to be the first resurrection. Jesus is called the first fruits of the first resurrection, first fruits from the dead. Uh, he rose from the dead before the rest of the barley harvest. That's the point and others rose with him. But the wheat harvest didn't start, as I said, till 50 days later. It was planted later, it was harvested later. And by the way, there's symbolism in the 50 too. Uh, the 50 days later is, um, seven, you know, first you got the 49 days, it's seven times seven. You got seven weeks and uh, seven Sabbaths. And then there's two Sabbaths stuck together. There's an extra 50. And so the seven times seven indicates the fullness of time, and then you got those two Sabbaths that point to the end of, you know, it points to eternity, when we're going to be forever freed from all vestige of sin and curse and thorns and all that kind of uh, stuff. So it points even symbolically to the end of time. But in any case, the barley harvest points to the resurrection of bodies that occurred at the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. The wheat harvest points to a resurrection at the end of the new covenant. So you've got kind of like bookends on each side of Christ's mediatorial kingdom. When he begins his kingdom, there's a resurrection. When he ends his kingdom and hands it over to the Father, there is a resurrection. And there's a, there's a point to that, a theological point that we'll get to in a moment. Now, a lot of this may be unfamiliar to you, so what I'm going to have you do, just so you can stay awake, is flip with me in your Bibles to a number of different scriptures to lay the groundwork for this incredibly important doctrine. By the time we get to the end, I think you're going to see this is an incredibly important doctrine. Very important that we understand it. Okay, turn first of all to Matthew chapter 27. This passage described the death of Christ, and then it inserts a little quick forward look of what's going to happen three days later when Christ comes out of the, out of, out of the grave. But uh, verse 51 deals with what happened at the time Christ died. There was this great earthquake. Verse 52 says, and the graves were opened. So the graves were opened the day Jesus died. Now here comes the forward look. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So it was clearly a resurrection of many people along with Jesus, and the Bible identifies this as the first 
fruits portion of the first resurrection. Okay? The word first occurs with this resurrection several times. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 26 and verse 23. Paul is telling Herod Agrippa what he had been preaching, and in verse 23 he says that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now you might object, now wait a minute, wasn't Lazarus raised from the dead before Jesus? Why does this say he was the first to rise from the dead? But you see, Lazarus was resuscitated, he was revived, but he was not given a glorified body. And you can see that by the fact that he was in danger of being killed again by the Pharisees, right? So this is quite clear that, uh, and by the way, resuscitations had happened before. You can think of the story of uh, that guy, uh, they were carrying his body, they were going to bury him, and then some bad guys came around and they quickly threw him into the tomb where Elisha was. As soon as his body touched the bones, boom, he stood up. <laughs> he was revived. But a resurrection to a glorified body, this passage makes clear, Jesus was the first, the first to rise from the dead. Okay, now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, and this is a really key passage uh, to understand verse 20, whole chapter is defending the importance of believing in a resurrection of our bodies. And in verse 20, Paul says this, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is always connected with barley, the barley harvest. And commentators point out, this is, this is the barley harvest that is being referred to here. So, if he's first fruits, it indicates that there's other humans that are going to be resurrected as well because that's not the main harvest. In any case, uh, the connection is made with the barley harvest. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. That would be A.D. 70. Then, and the word then is the same word. It was translated as afterward earlier. It's not immediately then, but it's afterward then. It refers to the end of time. Then comes the end when, and then he goes on to describe three things that happen at the end. He's going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. He's going to put an end to all rule, all authority, and he's going to bring the final resurrection. Okay, at the end of history. Now, people miss that conclusion because they assume that the then indicates that it's going to be at the time of Christ's coming that he's talking about. But if he had meant that, he would have used the Greek word tate, not the word eta. Eta does not mean at that time. It means at yet another point after that time. And it's often translated as afterward. So when Paul speaks of bodies being raised each in his own order, he's listing the A.D. 30 first fruits resurrection, then the resurrection at Christ's coming in A.D. 70, then the resurrection at the end of time. And by the way, the word for coming there is uh, parousia. It refers to a visible appearance in the sky. And we saw that the Jewish historians, the Roman historians, they testified to seeing this figure of this incredibly beautiful, this incredible, fearful uh, being in the sky, leading armies. And uh, some of these new manuscripts that have been uh, translated, it was a 
clearly witnessed event. So there was appearing in the sky, but this is not the word that's used for the permanent coming, the coming to the earth. This is just an appearance in the clouds of the sky. So Strong's Dictionary defines this Greek word as an appearing, not a permanent coming, specially of Christ to punish Jerusalem, unquote. So there is three stages of resurrection in this passage. There's first fruits, there's resurrection at his appearing in AD 70, and a resurrection at his second coming at the end of history. Okay, now turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and uh, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And again, the word first is connected with Christ's barley harvest resurrection. Turn to Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So the firstborn from the dead. Now turn to Hosea chapter 6. Now let me just comment while you're trying to find Hosea. (laughs) That the New Testament says that the Old Testament scriptures, plural, prophesied that Christ would be raised on the third day. Well, you can hunt a lot in the Old Testament. You're only going to find two passages in the Old Testament. It's got to be at least two to be plural that refer to a third day resurrection. This is one of those passages, but it's primarily referring to the many who rose with Christ. Okay, so take a look at Hosea 6, verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Okay, now flip over to Isaiah, Isaiah 26 and verse 19. Now this verse is describing Jesus' resurrection, and interestingly again, it shows many people rising with him, prophetically putting words into Jesus' mouth. Isaiah 26, verse 19, he's, he's speaking to Israel. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. There are other scriptures that indicate that there were many who were raised with Jesus in 30 AD. I I won't go through any more. I think that's fairly clear. So where do we get the idea that there would be an imminent resurrection in AD 70? Well, it's implied in the word first fruits. If the AD 30 resurrection is a first fruits resurrection, then the rest of the barley harvest should shortly happen. You wouldn't expect it to be long, long distance away because the, the main harvest was only like in the symbolism part, was only about a month later. So uh, the, the word first fruits implies it's imminent. Second, the next subpoint that I've put in your outline gives a boatload of scriptures which speaks about an imminent judgment against Jerusalem, connected with an imminent resurrection that was about to happen, connected with an imminent age that was about to begin. Unfortunately, the Greek word mellow uh, in each of those verses is sometimes translated away, but the Greek word always, always, always refers to something that's going to happen very soon. It's very near. It's about to happen. 
Now, how do pre-mills handle uh, these verses? Well, these are the verses that they go to to talk about uh, imminency. There is an imminent second coming, um, imminent resurrection, and uh, Christ has been about to come for the last 2,000 years, they will say. But it seems to me that about to does not mean 2,000 years later, um, because about to, if you look at all of its uses in East secular or in religious Greek, it's always something that happens very, very soon, very near. Um, and I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to take the time to go through the whole long list of scriptures that are given there that have that Greek word in it, but uh, I'm going to list the ones, I'm going to give the ones for you that give a, an imminent resurrection that's about to happen or an imminent judgment connected with the resurrection because those are the ones that people usually miss. Uh, Acts 17 and, and you're going to notice, especially if you, you have a, a Bible like mine, the, the New King James, some of them translate it literally, but you're going to notice it translated away in my New King James. So Acts 17 and verse 31, it says, Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge, and the Greek word is mellow, is about to judge, okay? A day in which he is about to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now, why would Christ's resurrection be a guarantee of imminent judgment? Because the book of Daniel connects the judgment of Israel with the resurrection. And so if Christ is the first fruits, there has to be an imminent judgment because there's going to be an imminent resurrection. So Christ's resurrection was a down payment or an assurance, a first fruit, so to speak, that guaranteed that there was about to be a judgment day with another resurrection. In terms of barley imagery, this would have been intuitively obvious to the Jews because uh, there was always going to be an imminent harvest after the first fruits harvest. Okay, take a look next at Acts chapter 24 and verse 15. This is Paul speaking. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, the word will be in the Greek is mellow, which refers to something very, very near. So it's more literally translated that there is about to be a resurrection of the dead. Well, he said those words about 10 years before the A.D. 70 resurrection, so very literally, it was about to, ha to happen. It was very soon. Take a look down at verse 25 of the same chapter where mellow occurs again. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, literally the judgment that is about to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. It was the very imminence of this judgment that made Felix afraid. Okay, turn next to Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 18. The whole context is the reversal of every facet of the curse in this universe, including the resurrection of our bodies, which Paul in verse 23 calls the redemption of our bodies. Even our bodies need to be redeemed. But I want you to notice the use of the word mellow in verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be, literally, which is about to be revealed in us. Now, in context, Paul is saying that this glory is the redemption of our bodies. That glory is about to be revealed in us. Now, Paul had already revealed that he was going to die prior to uh, Christ coming in A.D. 70, so he was about to be raised in A.D. 70. So what would happen to those who were still alive in A.D. 70? Well, the Thessalonians were very worried about that. And Paul told them, don't worry. If you are not part of that 70 A.D., uh, resurrection, you're going to be raised on the last day. Because he, he says, those who are alive and remain, alive and remain after what? Well, alive and remain after the 70 AD resurrection, they'll be raised on the last day. So everybody gets to partake in a resurrection. Maybe one more verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge, literally it's who is about to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now, the problem with full preterists is that they lump the barley and the wheat harvest together and they deny that we're going to have any future resurrection. The problem with the other extreme, the futurists, is that they fail to see... Uh, that there is a general barley harvest, okay? All they see is the first fruits, Jesus' resurrection, and, and then they see the wheat harvest. So they do not recognize a resurrection that was about to happen. They fail to distinguish between the barley and the wheat harvest. But if you see a resurrection in AD 70, and you see another one at the end of history, all the tension is removed from numerous passages that are otherwise very tough to explain to apostates, and apostates will quite frequently appeal to these imminency passages and say, oh, you guys are just cheating. You're translating this away. Uh, they prophesied that, that this was going to happen soon, and it didn't happen, so the prophets in Christ were wrong, is what these, um, these apostates say. Well, we say, no, they, they're not wrong. They happened exactly the way God uh, said that they would happen. And once you see that, there's numerous other thematic elements in Scripture that fall together. Now, at some point, I'll be putting some of these into my technical notes, but I'll just give you one little um, one from the book of Ruth. Ruth is such a cool book that foreshadows the marriage of Christ to the bride and uh, how it uh, involves both Jew and Gentile in one body. There's just a lot of cool stuff in there, but I just want to point to one symbolic aspect of that book. A lot of people have wondered, why does the book of Revelation have the marriage supper of the Lamb at 70 A.D. rather than A.D. 30 or at the end of history? That, that, that doesn't make any sense. But it's clear, it's very clear that the marriage supper of the Lamb happens in A.D. 70. Well, you can see it symbolically in the book of Ruth. Ruth arrives at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's Ruth 1, verse 22. Her mother-in-law tells her to stick around through the barley and the wheat harvest, but Boaz is in a hurry to get married. And so you find in chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, she gets married at the end of the barley harvest. And so um, she's not married at the end of the wheat harvest. 
Now, if the barley harvest points, the first fruits points to 80-30, and the end of the barley harvest points to 80-70, then you can see why Revelation would place the marriage supper of the Lamb in AD 70. The book of Ruth uh, prefigured that the marriage supper was at the beginning of the kingdom, not the end of the kingdom. By the way, it makes perfect sense if the bride is going to be ruling together with her husband Jesus during the course of his reign. That's got to be at the beginning of the reign, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. If it's at the end, that's when he turns the kingdom over to the Father. So it, it all does fit together uh, rather nicely. And I'm not going to get into that topic till we get to the passage of the marriage supper of the Lamb, but the point is that the Scripture is such a perfectly interwoven document. If you misinterpret one passage, it affects many other passages. Uh, they all are interrelated. Now, some of you may wonder, why do we even have to get into some of these technical things? Let me assure you, there are profound implications if we don't. We've got to settle some of these, uh, these details uh, before we can sail on other issues. The inerrancy of Scripture is at stake. When people deny a first-century resurrection, like many futurist Christians do, not all, they play into the hands of atheists who claim that Christ and the apostles were mistaken when they said it was about to happen. On the other hand, when people deny a future resurrection, as full preterists do, they too play into the hand of atheists who say, oh yeah, the church came along later on, they were so embarrassed by this failure of these prophecies that they had to insert some things that say, the resurrection's going to be a long ways away. The coming's going to be a long ways away. And um, some of the atheists' uh, websites, if you go on there, they, they have different explanations. Some just appeal to the first one mistake, and some say, no, the Christians tried to fix it, and then we've got all these contradictions. And we say, no, there was an imminent resurrection, and there will be a far-off resurrection. Both are critically important to the doctrine of the kingdom. Now, another benefit of holding to an AD 70 resurrection is that it perfectly answers the strongest objections that the full preterists have. And I think we're never going to win the, uh, the argument with them if we do not see this. They are so strong on these issues. They're not strong on other issues, but every eminence passage that the full preterist appeals to, we can say, yeah, I agree with that. It was perfectly fulfilled. Um, but full preterists ignore the other passages that deny an imminent um, fulfillment. For example, they say that all of Matthew 24 through 25, the Olivet Discourse, 100% of it was fulfilled in AD 70. The passing away of heaven and earth and the judgment of the goats and the sheep and all that. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding. Uh, there's no way. We say the first 34 verses of chapter tw um, 24 were fulfilled in AD 70, but all of the rest of chapter 24, all of chapter 25, deals with the end of this planet, uh, the end of history. It's, it's, it's way off in the, in, in the future. And uh, they have their numerous objections. I have my numerous answers, but I'm only going to mention the issue of time indicators that both the full preterists and the futurists mess up on. Futurists ignore the references in the first half of Matthew 24 to events being, and let me give you some of the words, being near, at the doors, within one generation, being about to happen, our favorite word, mellow. On the other hand, full preterists ignore the references in the second half of the Olivet Discourse, which indicate that Christ's second coming, the resurrection, all of these things, 
and here are the words it uses, will be delayed, as mentioned twice, delayed, will be far, um, will be um, after a long time, chapter 25, verse 19. So it's ironic that both extremes, both the futurists and the full preterists, have exactly the same contradiction. They make the word near in the first half to mean exactly the same thing as the word far in the second half of the Olivet Discourse. Near and far seems like opposites to me. They make the phrases at the doors, within one generation, at hand, and about to as being equivalent to delayed and after a long time in the second half. It destroys language. It makes the atheists mock uh, at us. The fact of the matter is that there are two comings that are mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. One is a coming in the clouds of heaven, not to the earth, in the clouds of heaven. In fact, it uses the word for appearance. It's not, it's not even a coming. It's an appearance. That's eighty seventy. And the other is referring a coming to earth at the end of history. Very, very clear. There are two resurrections mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. One is about to happen immediately after the Great Tribulation. And we've seen the Great Tribulation is in, you know, the first century, the 70 AD uh, era. And the other resurrection happens after a long time, happens after a period of peace. There is no tribulation on that resurrection. So I, I think this is the only answer that reconciles the strongest arguments of both the futurists and the full preterists. Now, if you turn to Revelation 20, I'll just give you a sneak peek at this one that also speaks of those two resurrections. And let's start reading at verse 4, which describes the martyrs who lost their heads in Nero's uh, great tribulation. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded on account of the testimony of Jesus and on account of the word of God, even those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there is a resurrection that is being described. They lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now that resurrection happens in AD 70, and the text indicates it comes immediately after the Great Tribulation. Then in verse 5, he wants to assure his readers that those who missed out on the A.D. 70 resurrection, they're not going to be left out, they just have to wait. So in a parenthetical statement, he says in verse 5, now the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. That's a parenthetical statement. Now, unfortunately, in the King James, New King James, it doesn't have parentheses around that first sentence in verse 5. It should. And this is not actually a controversial point. Pre-mills, all-mills, post-mills, everybody agrees that the first sentence of verse 5 is a parenthesis, and the last sentence of verse 5 is now going back and describing the resurrection in verse 4. Okay, everybody agrees on that. It's awkward grammar. There's a reason for it. There's awkward grammar. But the last sentence in verse 5 says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one having a part in the first resurrection. Upon such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So the first resurrection happens in AD 70. The rest of the dead do not rise till the thousand years is finished. That's off future. They don't rise till the end of history. 
So the first resurrection is the barley harvest. Second resurrection at the end of time is the wheat harvest. Now I want you to turn with me to one more passage. I know we've been going through a lot, but this is probably head-scratching new stuff to you. So I want you to see it in the text of Scripture. Daniel 12, and then we'll start applying Revelation 11 real quickly. Daniel 12, uh, verses 1 through 3. Now the context of this in chapter 11 is Herod the Great hearing news from the east, and after hearing news from the wise men from the east, he gets very troubled. He kills a whole bunch of people, then he ends up dying himself. So it's a first century context. So chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. Now, the book of Revelation has been talking about Daniel's great tribulation. But notice what happens right during that time. Verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Notice it says, many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake. It doesn't say all. The word many implies that there are still going to be others who will be raised at yet another different time. So hopefully you can see it is crystal clear. There was a resurrection in AD 70, but it's not the last resurrection. There's still going to be another resurrection at the end of time. Now let's uh, go back to Revelation 11. Let's just quickly whiz through uh, this passage, give highlights, uh, and we'll look at the number of days first. It says, And after three and a half days, the breath from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. Now why does it say after three and a half days instead of saying on the fourth day? Because if it's after three and a half days, it's going to be on the fourth day, right? But I think he says three and a half days to immediately give an impression in our minds, wow, that sure seems similar to Jesus being in the tomb for, or being dead for three, uh, for three days. And I think it's a thematic connection with the resurrection of Christ. In other words, it's yet another clue that this is part of the first resurrection, something Revelation is going to be crystal clear about later on. But it's three and a half days to make it crystal clear to us that this is not a symbol of Jesus rising from the dead, like some commentators make it out to be, because he did not rise after three and a half days. He rose on the third day, not on the fourth day. But still, there's this thematic connection. Notice, too, the reference to the breath from God entering them. Commentators point out this immediately gives this impression, hey, that's very similar to when God created Adam, from the dust, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul, right? All believers are part of a new Adam, a new humanity connected to Jesus, and even our resurrection is tied with Christ's resurrection, as 1 Corinthians 15 makes so clear. Well, here it is clear that apart from God giving life, there could be no life. I mean, this was a miracle every bit as much as Adam's creation out of the dust was a miracle. Okay, their bodies had been rotting by this time, and yet God reconstituted them just as easily as he made Adam from the dust. Now, some have worried, you know, what if I get lost overboard, you know, on a cruise ship and uh, get eaten by sharks, and uh, the sharks eat, eat, 
you know, my bones and everything and anything that's refuse get eaten by other fish and eventually there's nothing left of me, can I be resurrected? And people have asked, actually asked that, and I said, oh yeah, God knows your blueprints, he knows your DNA. Uh, he, can, uh, he can resurrect you in whatever state or non-state that your body is in, not a problem. It then says, they stood on their feet. Now God could have instantly caught them up to heaven so that nobody would have seen them, but he doesn't do that. He wants others to see them. So he has them stand on their feet so that they would be a remarkable witness. The crowd saw two deteriorating bodies stand up, and it was such a remarkable transformation it produced fear, it says, in everybody who had been watching. Verse 12 says, And I heard a loud voice from the heavens saying to them, Come up here. When God speaks, creation has to respond. It's just that's the way it is. A resurrection is not difficult for God at all. After all, God's the one who in Genesis 1 spoke and the light came into existence. When God summons us on the last day, our bodies, whether they're eaten by sharks or not, <laughs> they're going to respond. They have to respond to the voice of God. And God created the, the world out of nothing anyway, didn't he? Now the next clause says, they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. This is reminiscent of the ascension of Jesus to heaven on the clouds. And it again thematically connects their resurrection with the barley harvest. Now, I want to spend a bit of time on the impact that this had upon their enemies. Uh, well, first of all, let me mention the earthquake. Just as there was an earthquake connected with Christ's death and with his resurrection, there's an earthquake connected uh, with this amazing spectacle. Their enemies watched them, and in that day there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 individuals were killed in the earthquake. Now, because my books are all packed <laughs> in boxes, I was trying to pull out some quotes last night, and I was like, oh, no, I don't have the books to pull them out. But I do remember uh, Roman historians talking about, for example, a tidal wave that just completely swept up uh, all over Lycia, all over Egypt, and then uh, receded again. That must have been a pretty massive earthquake uh, to be able to accomplish something like that. There was a lot of seismic activity between 66 and AD 70, and this earthquake is one more thematic element that gives the impression of some connection with the barley harvest resurrection. Now, it doesn't say where they were watching from. Were they inside a building? Is that why they died? Uh, we're not told. But this earthquake either destroyed a tenth of the city's buildings or it destroyed a tenth of the population. And most commentators take it as a tenth of the population. Beasley Murray says the number 7,000 would suitably indicate a tenth of the population of Jerusalem in the first century A.D. Craig Keener says if 7,000 is understood as one-tenth of the population, the description fits Jerusalem better than Rome. Uh, anyway, it's because of the, I won't get into it, but the Greek parallelism between 10th and 7,000, it's not as clear in the English, but there is a parallelism there. Most of the commentaries that I own, uh, and I actually didn't take the time to go through all 99 this, this time, but most of them that I breeze through say that, that the 10th is the 7,000 that died. Okay, so... If it's a tenth, that means the population was 70,000, so that immediately pinpoints the time that this is happening to the last week uh, before the temple was burned. Even two weeks earlier, it would have been over 100,000 that were still in the city. They were dying off like flies. And we looked last week at several other timing indicators 
that pinpoint this down and say that the resurrection happened on Ab 9 in the Hebrew calendar, which is August 3 in the Gregorian calendar. So Christ produced death on the day of his coming, but he produces something else as well. The text goes on to say, and the rest became fearful and gave glory to the God of heaven. Who are the rest? Is it the rest of the citizens of Jerusalem or does it include Romans as well? Uh, opinion varies, especially since verse 11 says that uh, everyone who watched these bodies get raised was filled with fear. That would have included both Jews and, and Gentiles. But I think it has to at least include the Jews. And a lot of people are contentious about that. But I think it has to at least uh, uh, include uh, the Jews. Most straightforward reading of the words rest of is the rest of the same category as it died, which appears to be the regular inhabitants of the cities, which would be the Jews. So the question comes, well, that's strange. There's been judgment after judgment destroying these Jews. Does that mean there's a, a conversion, a massive conversion of Jews here? Um, and yet there's a few commentators who say that just can't be. Could God really have converted that many people on the spot just like that? I think it's actually a ridiculous... Uh, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, he can convert as many as he wants in one time. We saw earlier that he converted exactly 12,000 from each tribe. Uh, well, that takes the sovereignty of God to do something like that, and I think that's true here as well. It's not difficult. He can change a human heart as easily as he can govern the universe. In any case, most of my commentaries are convinced by five stubborn facts that this does indeed refer to genuine repentance. N not just they're terrified. No, they, they are changed. Their hearts are changed. No matter how difficult this makes it, and it does make it difficult for me then to reconcile this passage with Josephus in his history, I've been forced to the same conclusion. So let me give you those five reasons as to why I think that they were saved. First... Caird and others points out that in Revelation's vocabulary, the language of fearing God, glorifying God, worshiping God, and repenting before God are all so interconnected that they have to refer to that which flows out of a regenerate heart. Second, this exact phrase is used three times elsewhere in this book to distinguish between who is a genuine regenerate person, who is not. Three times. Uh, those who are not saved do not fear God. They do not glorify God. They cannot. And that would seem to be very odd usage if God did not intend for us to understand this is referring to salvation. Third, several commentators point out that this is a deliberate contrast with earlier portions of this war when the citizens did not yet repent or fear uh, the Lord. And that contrast is only explainable if this refers to their salvation. Fourth, other parts of the Bible use exactly this phrase to describe people coming to Christ, becoming believers. And I won't give, take the time to go through all the scriptures. Fifth, we've already seen earlier in the book that God's judgments were intended to be redemptive. In other words, to bring people to repentance. As Robert Utley points out, Revelation has three times stated that God's purpose in bringing these judgments was to bring men to repentance. Did God's purpose get thwarted? Is he trying to bring people to repentance, but nobody repents in the city? No, no. His purpose was indeed accomplished. So I lean very heavily in the direction of saying 
God orchestrated a massive conversion of Jews in this 12th hour. If that is true, then it really highlights how amazing God's grace is. It reaches to the uttermost. Despite their steadfast hostility to God, right up to the 12th hour, God changes them, converts them just as easily as he converted Saul of Tarsus. And this in turn shows that the witness of the prophets was not in vain. You know, I bet you those prophets would have been discouraged. Here they go, penetrating into the lion's den. They're preaching their hearts out for three and a half years. Nobody repents. They die. Okay, what a useless... You know, missionaries have thought that. They have preached and preached for years and seen no fruit. And yet people who came after them attribute the thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands who came to Christ for all of the watering, the the plowing, and the the seed that was planted by those previous people. So really, what my take home on this is, results are not why we do things. We do things to be faithful to God. The results are in His hand. And uh, we must be faithful like these witnesses were faithful. But I think it's an encouraging thing that in the New Covenant, God's judgments are usually redemptive judgments that lead to salvation. And we can pray that that would be true when we face judgments in America in the future. Now, one possible objection is given by Moses Stewart, and that is that the next verse indicates one more judgment. So he says, well, that doesn't make sense. If these guys are converted, why does God bring one more judgment? You wouldn't judge a people who's newly converted, would you? And the answer is actually quite simple, uh, as we'll see next time. The verses 14 through 19 move beyond Jerusalem to Jews throughout the empire and to Gentiles as well. And we'll we'll examine that next time. This morning, I just want to end by encouraging you to rejoice in three things. First of all, rejoice. You might have some really tough relatives. Rejoice that God's grace can crack the toughest nuts, you know. It can crack through the toughest hearts. As Paul worded it in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And I love that word, much more. Second, let's rejoice that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. You may have poured your heart out into your kids or into some other person. You think, look at what's happened. And this has all been fruitless. I've wasted my labors. No. Paul guarantees in 1 Corinthians 15 that you, your labors in the Lord are not in vain. And that's what enables us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labors are not in vain. Third, let's rejoice that Christ's redemption reaches to every facet of creation, including our bodies. Can we pray for healing? Some people don't believe in praying for healing of the body, and I think, why? I pray about everything. Uh, Can God heal our bodies? Yes. The resurrection is the ultimate healing, right? And God has encased both ends of the kingdom in resurrections to show that even our bodies are important to him. So I think those three facts ought to bring us joy. Our God is a great God who is worthy of great worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the encouragement that your word really does fit together beautifully like a puzzle. That you have commanded us to search as if we were digging for treasure, as if we were mining for gold and for silver. And uh, you have said that your word is truth. And we believe that, that there are no contradictions. It is perfect. It is inerrant. And we want to trust it. We want to bank our lives 
uh, on it. And so I pray, Father, that as we go forth from this place, our hearts would be encouraged to realize that if you said it, we can believe it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and sing in response. Uh,